murder. Swerving with my circus, looking for a purpose. Pseudo clean record, hope got so yeah, so you guys are not going to 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 Lanai uh, on Maui uh, on Monday. Where did you guys get it all switched over to go somewhere else? Yeah, we're switching. We're going to Kauai now. So oh, okay. Kind of last minute deal. We didn't figure it out till Monday or Tuesday, but luckily we booked through a travel agent, so we just let her kind of take the reins on that and tell us what we needed to do. Have you been to Kauai before or first time? I haven't been to Hawaii at all before. Neither has my wife. So we so. just came back from Kauai in April. Uh, very, very Poipu Beach is will be the hangout that everybody goes down to. Mm-hmm. But that and definitely go see the uh, they got a Kauai coffee farm out there. Uh, it's like gotcha. 20, 30 minutes away. But yeah, we we had a blast out there. It's probably our favorite island. Really? You know, had to check it out. We're we're excited. It was uh, been a lot stressful two weeks. I'm sure that's nothing compared to what everybody else has been going through. But go out there and see how it is well i don't know man maybe you can link up with oprah and buy some uh buy some land i hear she owns like half of maui now oh that's great i'm sure there'll be a couple mil- couple million dollar <laughs> mansion out there yeah apparently the uh the the town that you know got destroyed in the uh in the fire they the state has already made overtures that they're going to move in and go ahead and you know take take that land um so I'm not really sure how that works out with a Democratic governor. Uh, you know, they're moving in to, to steal the people's land. I think we've heard that that story somewhere before. Um, so I'll be interested to see how that works out and, and see what happens in the press. And, dude, did you see their emergency management director or whoever the heck he is? Like, he quit? He resigned? Oh, yeah. The, yeah, it, he was not trained in emergency management. He wasn't... He wasn't trained in it. He wasn't an expert in it. And the reason they, the first reason he said he didn't sound the, uh, the sirens because those are tsunami sirens and they didn't want anybody to run inland because, you know, because people are stupid. They would just run into the fire. Of course. Yeah. I'm burning. I'm burning. Tom Cruise, help me. But you're not, but you're not being, but you're not, but you're not dying from a tsunami. And, you know, I mean, you know, granted. Okay. So, Let's say people did hear that and they think tsunami. Maybe you could just have a different siren sound for, you know, hey, there's a fire. There's a, there, there's a volcano erupting because they have those there. I'm pretty sure, you know, read my history book. That's how Hawaii was formed. So so fire is not out of the question uh, on those islands, right? Um, and, and well, then he came blood. back and said it was because, like, we're at one with the water. And water isn't, you know, we shouldn't be looking at water as, like, we use water. We are at one with water, so we just didn't want to waste the water on, you know, putting the fires out in your house and the 111 right. people that are dead, you know, whatever. <laughs> one, I didn't want to use my fire extinguisher because I just bought it, and it was under my kitchen sink. And I didn't want to use it on the fire because then I wouldn't have a fire extinguisher, right? <laughs> I, I'd have to go buy a new one. So, yeah, that whole that whole thing is crazy. Um, that is absolutely insane. So anyway, anyway, so I guess we should address the elephant in the room. Obviously Luke is not here. Uh, so I, you know, we had to bring two guests on to replace Luke. So that'll give Luke a big head. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get, uh, what a 33% increase on viewership or whatever. But, uh, Josh, once you introduce these two fine gentlemen on here. All right, we'll do. Yeah, Luke. Uh, Luke couldn't join us because he's uh, he's still in like week four of the dog adoption process. Apparently, it's a really busy process on a Saturday evening uh, when you're you know adopting a dog <laughs> that you've had for three weeks. So, all right, enough talking. Enough talking garbage about Luke. 
bailing on us. So anyway, so hey, Cantina, so tonight uh, for for this episode, we have Brandon and Jarrett uh, coming on. So both are uh, both are loyal listeners, and you've heard us give uh, you know you've heard us give them shout outs before on the uh, on the podcast. Um, so Brandon and Jarrett live out in in the Midwest, and they are. I would say Brandon is in the uh, you know in the farming business, and as is Jarrett. Um, although you know Brandon's out there you know doing doing the farming, and Jarrett's providing all the all the supplies that that support that. And what we want to do is bring them on, and you know, just kind of get a rundown and and the what's what uh, on farming in in the United States, and you know, hopefully they can clear up some of the misconceptions that people have. And, you know, hopefully we got some, you know, we got some questions for them and some topics for them to, to hit, but just kind of really give us a, you know, give us a rundown on what it's like to, to be out there grinding on, you know, in, in the farming industry day in and day out. Uh, you know, for us, we take a lot of things for granted. You know, I, I get hungry, I go to the grocery store and, you know, I just grab what's on the shelf and, a lot. you know, whatever dude (laughs) so roger roger thinks i'm fat roger says i eat too much so you know we go to the grocery store we grab whatever's on the shelf and a lot of people and even me at times we don't give too much consideration to how it got there um so you know how it got there is because of men like brandon and Jarrett. that's that's how it got there that's how it gets to the store for you to for you to shove in your face uh you know so Brandon, um, you know, just kind of, just kind of kick off with, with, with you kind of, how did you get, you know, let the listeners know, obviously I know, and you know, Roger's got some background on it too, you know, me filling them in, but just kind of let the listeners know, kind of, how did you get into the farming business and kind of how long has your family been in the, in the farming business there? So I got into farming obviously, cause my family's been in it ever since I was a child. Uh, I'm the fifth generation on this homestead for farming. Um, so, I mean, I guess it is just a, a family tradition that I'm lucky enough to get to continue. And, uh, yep. so now you guys do, you guys do corn, soybean, and you guys, and you guys have some cattle, correct? Yep, that's right. Yep. So we run, just like Josh said, we run corn, soybeans. Uh, my dad runs cattle. So I mean, we get to see each different facet of the agriculture world here in this area. Uh, that's the vast majority of what goes on right where we're at. Uh, you go out west and you start seeing some wheat, and you see a lot of cattle farms out west that just strictly feed lots. But mostly what we do is all, as far as the cattle size, all cow calf pair. So we just essentially keep kicking babies out year after year. We don't, and then we, we sell them. We don't feed them out. Um, well, I'm not sure. Now you so, guys, you guys send some of your cattle off for your own consumption, right? Yeah. So we have, um, in the past couple of years, uh, we've kind of stopped feeding them out. We were sending them up to a, a feed lot where they'd, take them at 800 pounds, feed them out till they're 12 to 1300 and then butcher them. But the cost of that got so high that it wasn't really making sense. So we'll just, now we'll pretty much just raise them up to seven, 800 pounds and sell them and let somebody else feed them out and pay for them to do that. Just because the inputs on the cattle side, as well as the farming side, have just gotten so great that 
that seems to be the more economic option for for our farm. So you said the cost went. What were some of the things driving the uh, driving the cost on that up? Well, the biggest thing is, I mean, the cost of grain right now is high. Um, there's a lot of different factors driving that. Um, mostly supply and demand. Uh, now, does most of your stuff stay local, or does it get shipped? Uh, and the cattle as well as the, the, the agriculture. Does most of that stay local, or does that get shipped around the, the country, or what's your distribution like on that? So from the farmer to the grain elevator, it stays local. I mean, we're shipping our grain to an elevator 20 miles away, and a lot of that hops on a rail. And from there, to be honest with you, I'm not sure where it ends up. Um, I know the vast majority of what I sell ends up at MGP Distillery, um, which is right there in <laughs> oh, about, yeah. about 20, mil- 20 miles from us. So My man. Gets turned into some gets turned into some good bourbon real quick. Uh, so do they at least hook you up and like give you some bottles or like, Hey man, come take a tour. So they don't do that. Uh, but (laughs) early on we were getting Remus out here by the case. I mean, it was, uh, nowhere else in the country could seem to hardly get it. And the local liquor store for four years after it was released was sitting on four or five cases, of Remus three, Remus four. And it was it was wild. They shipped a whole ton of it out here, and then it got popular with Remus 5 and dried up after that. So, Josh, you hear that? We need to tag uh, MGP. Like, what the heck, man? I know, right? Yeah. So I got a chance, you know, on some of our, uh, on some of our vacations out to uh, – you know, out to Brandon's place, um, got a chance to, to ride along in the, uh, in the semi to, to take it over to the, to the grain elevator and MGP is right there. And they had, uh, our last year, we were just out there, uh, when we were out there, Brandon, it was July, June or July, one of the yeah. two. Yeah. Ju- early July. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Early July. We just come back from, uh, from our cruise and, um, you know, got to go over to the elevator and then yeah, MGP that the, so it's right next door. And, uh, they also make this vodka and it's called till vodka. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Even though Fred Minnick, the, you know, the bourbon critic said, you know, vodka sucks unless you're, you know, unless you're cleaning up dead cats, uh, and there's, <laughs> there's a story, but there's a story that goes behind that. You'll have to go look on his YouTube channel for it. Um, but but they now they're but they're going to discontinue uh, till vodka. But it was kind of cool because the the bottle was super cool. You know, it had a had a farmer with an old school plow on it. Um, so I thought that was pretty. I thought it was pretty neat. But yeah, it's it, it's right there. And every time I see it, you know, I always tell Brandon and uh, and his dad, be like, hey man, you guys keep growing it. I'm drinking it as fast as I can get my hands on it. <laughs> um, you know, so. So the cost got the cost got kind of high for you know for cattle. So you're raising them. You said seven to eight hundred pounds, and you're selling them off. Um, kind of, you've been in it, you know, since like you said, since you were a kid. How much have costs gone up? So you know, break it down for for the listeners. What does it cost? You know, and I don't know if you guys break it down cost per bushel or cost per acre. Or, you know, and Jared, you know, feel free to jump in, you know, because a, a large amount of that cost comes from, obviously, the fertilizer, you know, and stuff that, that you deal in. Um, so if you guys could just kind of break down, like, what's the cost per acre or bushel or, you know, however you do it to, you know, to, to grow some corn, soybean. Yeah, Brandon, you want me to take this one? Yeah, go right ahead yeah. and I'll jump in if I need to. Yeah, so, I mean, the 
the every day of what I do is, is supply the inputs to, to growers like Brandon. So, you know, you've got costs, um, you know, for seed, chemical, fertilizer, a bunch of different stuff. And it takes um, just a lot of different avenues of bringing that product in and delivering it to the grower. So, um, you know, Brandon, I think this year, you know, it's, it's varied so much also just from, you know, last year, our inputs, you know, for like anhydrous ammonia, which is, um, you know, a major input, um, that we, uh, that we use, you know, you're looking at $1,300 a ton and you're putting on, you know, 200, 200 pounds of that product actual. So you're really throwing about 250 on, um, you know, so you you might be a hundred bucks an acre for that. You might be, you know, a hundred bucks an acre for, for P and K, which would be, um, like your phosphate and potash, uh, chemicals can get, you know, pretty expensive. You're looking at about a hundred bucks an acre there. Um, potentially, you know, when you include fungicide and stuff like that, um, and then your seeds, you know, kind of the same story. So it, I mean, I don't know what, what you kind of think, Brandon, but I mean, in that, you think it takes 600 bucks to put a corn crop in per acre? Yeah, I would say 600 is a pretty, pretty fair estimate in this area. And that's, that's increased over the last, I would say since 2020, I would say in 2020, we expected to spend around 400 bucks an acre. And this year, I mean, we're six to 700. So, I mean, pretty 50% increase, pretty substantial. Uh, it just, of course, the, the price of corn's gone up over the last couple of years. And that's been driving these high fertilizer prices because everybody's got to get theirs on it. So the fertilizer companies, of course, they see an opportunity to make a little more. So they go ahead and up the prices. We get, and, you know, we're making the same, maybe a little bit more money as we were when corn was three bucks. Corn, for uh, examples, about five bucks right now. It kind of fluctuates every day. Um, But we just have so much more risk right now. I mean, what we used to have. 400 bucks an acre in just for uh, we've got 600 bucks in it now like I said and it's it's a more of a high risk high reward type of deal Um, how so so I mean we're fighting for say 10% return on our investment so you put a thousand bucks in the ground you're hoping to get a thousand or a hundred bucks out of it um but it's the same way, you know, you get 3000 bucks in the ground. Now, all of a sudden you've got say half a million dollars loaned and you're really trying to use that half a million to make, you know, 50, hundred thousand, but you're still risking that whole 500,000. I mean, if the bottom drops out of the market, it goes from five bucks to three bucks. Your, um, your income's cut in half and you still got all that money sitting out there. So yeah. it's a got, lot. Yeah, a lot of it, I think, is just, a, you know, one of those things. And it's the same way for us. You know, when we go, um, you know, it may be from a local market, we may get a bid on fertilizer at 1300 bucks a ton. And the reason for that, you know, like last year, these local producers, you know, say anhydrous, PK, whatever, you know, you've got a certain price that it costs to make it in the U.S., but like, Ukraine last year, they were the ones that were using a lot of anhydrous, but 
they are all their, you know, overseas fertilizer plants got shut down. So the demand was overseas. And so they were buying it for 1300 bucks a ton. You could probably get it here based off of their cost, you know, in the $600 a ton range. But all these U.S. producers were shipping it over there because they could make so much more money. So to keep it in-house, you actually had to meet that demand. Um, and it's, it's no different from the supplier side. I mean, we're, you know, footing the bill for $1,300 to make $100 as a pair, you know, kind of the same similar story you just got a lot more risk um, with a lot less margin involved so it's it's been crazy and then you take that you know the the grain markets have been coming down you know the past few months and you've got all that stuff um, invested you know at a pretty high cost so you catch that on the downturn and that's when it gets really risky Um, so a lot of it I mean in Brandon's case is going to be basically hedging his bets um, you know, in the markets, uh, talking to his, you know, producer or the end user basically to get the price that he needs to cover himself, basically just to survive. Right. Now for the corn market itself, do you guys, have you seen any type of subsidy from the government? I know for, it seems like certain farms years ago, because of the big ethanol push, they were paying, uh, you know, certain farms to just grow corn or whatever, as opposed to some of the other crops. Have you guys seen that in, in the recent years or? So as far as the subsidies goes, you know, over the last couple of years, the direct payments as far as subsidies to from the government to the farmer have dropped off. But there's they're always subsidizing ethanol, um, which luckily, like we were talking about earlier, MGP, they make tons and tons and tons of ethanol. That's the vast majority of what they're doing is actually on the ethanol side for fuel. Right. Um, but. And, honest, and that I'm takes away, a, and that takes away from feed too, right? I mean, from what I've heard, and I don't know anything about farming, but uh, especially when the corn starts being used for that as opposed to feed, it drives up the feed costs, and then it goes back to your cattle thing, where it's like, okay, now it's costing more to feed the animals. We only do it at a certain tonnage or a certain poundage, and then you know, kick the can down the road for somebody else to feed them. It does, and that's a double double edged sword as well, because I mean, the government keeps subsidizing for reasons to keep using this corn because i mean we're at this point i believe we're substantially um, overproducing corn so the government really is trying to help as far as doing the ethanol type things just to keep keep the grain moving out of the farms and really prop up the farmers so i mean they are doing a lot to help us so brandon you said that it went from in 2020 it was like 400 dollars an acre average to now it's you know six no, $700 an acre average. What was it prior to 2020, if you can remember? Um, it fluctuated quite a bit, but it was, I would say that 300 to 400 range is pretty well where it bounced around. And that's not figuring in land prices. Um, there's a lot of different avenues to do that. But as far as what your actual inputs for fertilizer, seed, chemical, uh, machinery, we were somewhere between 350 and 400 bucks, I would say for the previous few years, um, everything's growing exponentially, uh, as far as cost wise goes over the last two decades. I mean, really since the eighties, it just keeps, it's a skyrocket straight up. Yeah. So the, you bring up the, bring up the machinery. What does, 
what does an average combine cost? If you want to go buy combine new off the lot, no matter what size, the smallest or the biggest, you're going to spend north of a half a million starting out. Good Lord. I would say the average Holy average Lord. size combines, brand new off the lots, somewhere in the $600,000 figure, and you can get them up. The biggest ones they make that I'm aware of are right around a million. That's just the combine. Then you got to buy headers for them too. And new price on a header for a farm our size, they're probably about 100000 a piece. you got to buy two of them. One for corn, Holy one for moly. soybeans. Oh, it's Did outrageous. You? I mean, the the amount of money we get invested, I, we are we're high high risk, high reward. It's it's <laughs> wild the amount of money you get just sitting in the ground for six months. Holy moly! And so you've got so and I you know obviously I've seen your stuff. You've got you know that big John Deere combine, and then you just bought. Well, I say just bought. Um, you picked up a uh, a sprayer, right? Yep. Um, we had had a, we'd run an older sprayer for quite a few years and it was getting to be time to upgrade, but I couldn't justify, you know, dropping a few hundred thousand dollars on a sprayer without picking up something to offset that expense. So in order to do that, I went ahead and started spraying a lot of custom acres. I spray 10 to 15,000 acres a year with that sprayer just to help me pay for it. So that it's not all come straight out of the farm because that's just something I personally can't justify without the extra income from it. Yeah. So yeah. For essentially sure. a second full-time job. Yeah. A couple months out of the year. No, dude, one thing you, you guys definitely stay busy. So you've also incorporated, um, you've also incorporated the drones into, into your spraying. Is that, is that more cost efficient? I know we kind of talked about it. Is that more cost efficient? Is it faster? Break that down for us. So, the drones typically around here are used for uh, a fungicide application. So you're essentially trying to control fungus and disease in your corn and soybean crops. And how that's always been done in the past, you've got essentially three options. You're going to have an airplane spray it. You're going to have a helicopter spray it, or you're going to run a ground rig and run over a whole bunch of your crop. Um, and of course, not every farmer has his pilot's license to be able to go out and spray. And the, uh, the drone technology is kind of the first way that a farmer has been able to actually control end to end on how his fungicide is applied. Uh, Jarrett could probably talk more on that. He's pretty well versed on the, on the fungicide side of things. That's kind of what he does for a living part of it. Yeah. So like, I guess when I moved up here, um, you know, I started working for uh, Heinen brothers agri-service, which they're basically in the, the aerial application business. So they were the ones that did all the, the applications with the planes, the helicopters, um, stuff like that, which, I mean, you've got a, you know, those are a couple avenues and they do really great. Um, but you know, you start breaking down the cost per acre. I mean, you're looking at probably $10 an acre, um, you know, maybe less on an average year, but you know, this year it was 10. Um, so, you know, you're going over 1500 acres. That's a pretty significant investment. Um, so, you know, a drone, I mean, Brandon, what, what do you think a drone would run? Maybe 25,000 these days or. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty close. To, they're usually, yeah, 25 to 30,000 a piece. Yeah. So it's a pretty major cost savings to the grower. If they have the time and the manpower to, to do that, um, 
you know, but the, the airplanes really can cover some ground and the, the drones are getting there. I mean, I, I've seen more and more acres go to a drone, um, you know, this past year than I have in years past. Um, you know, but any way that you're getting that on, you know, it is a good, efficient way. Um, I think a lot of guys around here, I think Brandon included, probably just runs his ground rig on his beans just, you know, for the simple fact he's got that investment in the machinery um, and needs to pay it off. But like corn, you cannot um, go over it with a ground rig. I mean, there's a few guys that do, um, you know, but you're knocking over a lot of your crop. Um, so, you know, you've got the three options, the helicopter, the plane, um, or that drone, and, and it's just a significant savings to the grower. So. Oh. So on the on the fungicide piece, I know Jerry, we kind of talked about it when when I was out there. You know, so I had a couple of questions from you know folks. I told a couple of folks I was like, hey, you know, we're gonna have you know a couple of guys on um, and talk about farming and, and stuff. And so the you know the the GMO versus non GMO you know question kind of came up. And then you know what what's okay to be sprayed on crops, what's not okay to be sprayed on crops. If you if you, what is the, what's the harvest on, you know, let's say an acre that has been sprayed with fungicide versus, you know, how much can you expect to harvest on, you know, an acre that has not been sprayed with fungicide? How much, you know, would you potentially lose to, you know, to some type of fungus or disease? So, I mean, that depends a lot. Um, Sure. You know, you've got, you know, premium fungicides, you know, it's just like anything else. You can either go, you know, get an Adidas jacket or you can go get, you know, something from Walmart type of thing. But um, <laughs> I guess that's the, the best way to put it, you know, but, uh, you know, all those are not created equal. But, you know, I'm an agronomist by trade. So basically, I guess I'm a plant doctor. Um, so the goal, you know, to produce the biggest yield is to keep that plant as healthy as possible for as long as possible until it's matured. Um, so, you know, even this year and Brandon's got good experience with this too. I mean, we've got diseases that can come rob. I mean, you know, if you're trying to grow a 250 bushel corn crop, it may come in and rob 60 bushel right off the top. And that, that's a significant cut into your investment. So, um, you know, it may cost 30 bucks an acre, um, you know, to go spray a fungicide on there. Um, and if, you know, you're talking $5 corn, corn, that's six bushel to pay that off. So if you're going to spend six bushel to make 54, you know, that's a pretty, pretty good investment. But, you know, on an average year, that just really helps mitigate stress in that plant. There's a couple different chemistries in there that are, you know, really just, um, they increase the GABA levels in that, in that crop. And it's really just to mitigate stress. So that could be heat, um, you know, like a, a drought type stress. There's just a lot of different variables in there, but I mean, that's the the end goal is to keep that plant healthy until it gets through that grain fill period, so that you have the most yield. So, Jer, so on the on your side of the house, when you end up selling your stuff to Brandon, how are those? Do you pretty much set the price and it is what it is, or is there a negotiating piece back and forth, or how does that work from your end? <laughs> I mean, there's always a negotiation. I know we're, 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 we're airing dirty laundry here. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. hey, hey, Brandon, you're about to Luck- find out you're going to get screwed. So just bear no, with me. No, luckily, Brandon, don't beat me up too bad. Um, but, you know, there's always different different pricing. So, like, on our side of things, we have early order discounts basically to get us the best price. 
Um, and I, I never go out to a grower looking to, you know, take advantage of them by any means because they're the, the lifeblood of basically, you know, our business. Um, you know, but we kind of same thing. We might try to get 10% margin out of there. Um, but I mean, even on like fertilizer, you know, you're bidding up against the market. So say, you know, I bought it $500 a ton on anhydrous. Our competition may have bought $530 a ton um, and contracted that price. So that gives me an opportunity to probably make a little bit more margin as opposed to if I was at the 530 and he was at the 500, he'd set his price off 500 and I'd potentially be making less money. I mean, that's just kind of the, the fertilizer game. It's probably really no different than, uh, you know, selling gas at the gas station. You know, you've got two two gas stations right next to each other. They're going to set their price pretty darn close. Um, you know, but there's always, you know, bargaining power. I mean, you're in control of what what you make. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm never out to, to take advantage of anybody by any stretch of imagination, but no, I mean, but it is a, it is a for-profit business. And that's what, you know, one thing I, you know, you try to relate to our listeners out there and I'm going somewhere with this, uh, eventually, but it, you know, it is a for-profit business where it's like, Hey, it's not just the cost of the product, but you also have a company to sustain employees, your salaries, such as so forth. Absolutely. So Brandon, how much say do you have? So let's like MGP. Uh, do they pretty, because it is a commodity. So in theory, they can get grain from any other farm that grows it. How much wiggle room do you have as far as what you sell uh, your price point to like an MGP or something like that? So basically how the grain market works um, is they put out a bid, say, say the market's five bucks, then they have their basis on top of that. So the basis is essentially what they're paying you to get it to them. It's kind of an incentive to make it to them. Uh, a lot of times basis runs under. So say the market's at five bucks, they're going to go ahead and give you $4 and 80 cents. Well, the market fluctuates every day, I mean, anywhere from a penny to 50 cents. Most of the time it's in that one to two to three cents. So basically how my marketing works is you've got to kind of pick your spots where you're making money at and sell them. Forget that you sold it. Cause a lot of times, you go ahead and sell a big chunk. The next day, she skyrockets and goes the other way. <laughs> you just got to kind of look at it and say, well, I made my money. I made my decision and uh, get out of it from there. And and for our listeners out there, this is where the PPI comes in. So we always talk about inflation, right? And then you always have, uh, you know, your CPI, Consumer Price Index, PPI. And what a lot of people don't realize, because the numbers aren't publicized as much, but, you know, hearing Jared and Brandon talk, you're really talking about PPI numbers. This is where inflation starts, right? So you take Brandon, who hasn't planted one seed yet, uh, obviously has to get a lot of stuff from Jared. Then he's got to go out and buy the seed. And, and we're not even talking about the capital that you already have to have. And, and you know, you just talk about a combine that's, you know, at least $500,000, right? That, that's, I'm assuming that's not one of those things you buy after the, uh, you know, after the, the harvest. I mean, it's kind of like you have to have that going into it. Um, so, you know, these are all the inputs that lead to that price that you see at the grocery store. Cause at the same time, you're just seeing, you know, the backside pricing here. Well, MGP, for example, which I'm still like, Josh, you never told me that that's like incredible that he sells. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm still stuck on this, but you know, you, you, MGP hasn't even made their product yet. Right. So now there's an entire 
another another industry employees company product that goes through and now especially with bourbons at least two years up to eight nine ten eleven years uh, that they've got to turn around and sell so all of those costs get factored in so when people sit here and look i mean you know i always say it's like wait till people start figuring out that inflation is year over year you know because everybody's touting ah three percent no 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 it's three percent from what it was over last year's increase. So now you're at 16 or, or 17 or 18 percent, depending on the month that you're talking about. But for our listeners out there, this is really where it all starts because, uh, and maybe you guys can talk a little bit more about this as far as what you see in the grocery stores uh, compared to your price, you know, increases what you've seen on your end. But, you know, this is a, it's kind of a, a domino effect that you may not see for months down the road, right? Uh, you know, you plant your corn, you, you plant your, you know, your soy or whatever, what have you. Those costs get baked in. Well, we may not see it in the stores for four, five, six, seven months. Uh, so f- from what you've seen, uh, I almost sound like a farmer. I almost sound like I know what I'm talking about, but uh, which I have no experience <laughs> at all, zero. Uh, the From what you guys see, and, and we'll start with, with you, Jared, as far as your, your price inputs, do you see prices going up or down over the next six months, a year, as far as produce and, and just general agriculture? Yeah, I, man, really now our inputs are going down um, really for the first time, you know, since that COVID era. I mean, you talk about like chemical prices, you know, during that time frame. you know, we had maybe, you know, some chemicals that were, you know, like glyphosate would have been in that $15 a gallon range, um, which you're, you know, you're using a quart to the acre. So, you know, you've got a pretty minimal cost there. You know, we get into, you know, 2022, 2021, that price jumped up to, you know, 80 bucks a gallon. That's a pretty significant cost increase just because of, you know, demand. And I think the reason for that, you know, there's yellow phosphate basically, which is in glyphosate is produced in China where we couldn't get it here. So, you know, obviously we couldn't get the demand that we needed of that product. So it just skyrockets. Um, so basically that is reflected in a, in a grain price kind of too, because, you know, you've got to incentivize a grower to produce to a level. Well, if they can't produce it at the cost given, the price goes back up. So, uh, you know, in a commodity market, just simple supply and demand, um, you know, so, so we saw those prices increase now that the grain market's kind of falling, you know, those chemical prices have come back down, um, you know, to where it's, kind of almost stable. I mean, next year, you know, we were talking about what chemical prices were going to be Friday in our meeting. Um, and, you know, you're looking at glyphosate back down in that $9 a gallon, maybe the cheapest it's ever been before. Um, so, I mean, inputs are coming down, um, but, you know, so are grain prices. So um, at the end of the day, we kind of just have to, you know, be happy with what we got there on the fertilizer side. Um, you know, prices tend to go up um, based off of like a seasonal demand, you know, so spring is going to be um, kind of an increased demand for, you know, your nitrogen fertilizers. Um, so anhydrous, you know, 32%, stuff like that. Um, but a lot of those are based off of like a a quarterly market. So, you know, like, anhy- or, you know, Brandon probably went to his supplier and said, Hey, I need anhydrous ammonia delivered for Q4, which would be October through December to put anhydrous on in the fall. He's going to get his best price by prepaying that, you know, once we go through our prepay, you know, it's, it's up again. So, 
you know, you're looking at probably a hundred bucks a ton increase just from prepay, which would have been probably, you know, a month ago to where we are now. I mean, we've, we've taken a price increase. So it just kind of depends on the seasonal trends. Kind of like the grain markets, it's always going to be the cheapest at harvest normally. And then as you get grain moved through the system, you know, you're going to have a, a higher demand or incentivize that MGP to pay more for um, that product just so they can have it. Now, some of those, when you talk, uh, you know, when you talk about the, the, the price, I know, you know, we kind of, we kind of chatted about it. Um, some, you know, a lot of farmers, they, they do a contract with the grain elevator and that's, you know, the price is the price and that's what their contract is for, you know, whatever, by, you know, you got to have, you know, this many tons or whatever, you know, in by this month. And then, um, what is it, what, what is it called again? When you just, Hey man, you just wait for that day, you know, you shove it in your grain bin and you just wait for the day that the market's high and then you throw it in the truck and, and you go, I couldn't remember what the term was for that, uh, Brandon that you, that you called that. Um, so, that's called spot selling is essentially what it is. I mean, okay, yeah. like you said, it's just the day you decide you want to go ahead and take grain out of your bin and haul it to town. You're going to drive it across the scales. They're going to give you whatever market value is for it. And you're going to keep going. But most guys, for the most part, at least most of the guys that I know contract everything. So, I mean, I'm, I'm contracting out, you know, six months in advance already just to try to start locking in profits as we see what they should be. Uh, but the biggest thing is you can't overcontract because there's a decent chance um, that you're going to, you can overcontract, you can over underproduce what you're contracting as well. Um, sure. Yeah. So one of the interesting things that I was thinking of when we were talking about the inputs is a lot of the times I'm paying my inputs 15 months before I'm even going to start getting that cash back. So like Jarrett was talking with prepay, I'm already prepaying for fertilizer for next year. And I won't even get to sell that grain until December to June of 2025. So I mean, holy, we're holy. 15, 18 months out with money tied up at this point. And what's really starting to hit us is these interest rates. Oh, yeah. You know. I operated for a long time on, you know, three, four, five percent interest and now we're getting up in the eight percent and it's to me it doesn't seem like it's slowing down and it's gonna start turning into a real problem very fast. Now, what would you have to do? What are, you know, if, if the interest rates keep going up, what are some of the, you know, does that, is that going to get passed on to the consumer or is that one of those to where, you know, heaven forbid farms start, you know, taking a look at, okay, is it, you know, is it worth being in the farming business anymore? Um, guys are really going to try to keep their head above water as long as they can, but man, when the banks stop getting their money, they're going to, they're going to start looking for it other ways. Of course, everybody's got to put up collateral in some way, shape, or form. And the banks banks can't collect their money. That's when stuff starts getting sold, and that's that starts a snowball effect that lasts for generations. I mean, it'll put put families out. Yeah, I think we saw a lot of that with farms in the in the nineties. Um, you know, in the in the early two thousands, people had to start. You know, people had basically you know 
like they say, like saying goes, man, they had to sell the farm, um, you know, to to keep their head above water. Uh, well, I'd say the '90s, I'd say more the '80s than uh, than anything. So, Jared, you mentioned uh, you mentioned China. Um, one of the things I want, I know, uh, you know, reading up and and doing some other some due diligence, China buys an incredible amount of soybeans from us. Um, approximately how much do you guys, you know, I didn't see the, the percentage on how much they buy, but how much do you guys know if any, what they buy and then how do they manipulate the market? Um, I think we kind of talked how they would, you know, promise to buy stuff and you're, you know, you go out and you grow it and then they turn around and they say, yeah, we're not going to buy that. Um, which, you know, kind of tanks the market. Uh, one of y'all, you know, just kind of talk us through that and how that works. Yeah. I'd say Brandon might know a little bit more, uh, than me because I'm probably not as consistent on the green markets as he is. But, you know, with with China canceling contracts, I mean, that's just your demand, you know, that goes away for that product. And I think they're, you know, they're the biggest customer, uh, and you know, end user for us on a lot of different uh, commodities, you know, Milo, soybeans. I mean, they're even a big corn buyer, um, you know, so they're they're really one of our biggest um, end users and, you know, you take that demand away and that, that's where you see that, that grain price drop. Yeah. I was trying to look that up today and I couldn't, I know that there's a straight answer on how much we actually export to China. It's somewhere in the realm of, I don't, it's multiple, multiple million bushels. Uh, just trying to Google it real fast, but I'm not quite fast enough. I was also looking to get a straight answer on how China co- is allowed to cancel the contracts. So there's a lot of times China will come in and say, you know, we're going to buy, say, 10 million bushel over the next six months. And, you know, they'll lock in the price. Then the grain elevators start putting out their bids, up in their bids. We start selling it to them. And, you know, three months down the road, turns out Brazil has cheaper corn than the U.S. China just comes along and says, null and void we're buying everything from brazil and that's what'll tank the crop market more than anything so when china starts canceling and i haven't i did a lot of googling and i just couldn't come across exactly why they're allowed to do it besides the fact that they're just a huge importer and china kind of does what they want yeah you think that there would be something that they you know once they agreed to that it would be you know they would be locked in um i know they've done the same thing with uh with pecans in the south uh, you know, around where my parents live, there's, you know, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of acres of, uh, of pecan farms. And, you know, China's probably one of the main buyers of pecans from, from the United States because for some reason they don't, they haven't figured out how to plant their own and grow their own. Um, and uh, they've kind of done the, they've kind of done the same thing, uh, you know, down there. Uh, but, the demand doesn't seem to go away for, for pecans there because pecans now are incredibly expensive. I remember as a kid, like you could go buy a pound of pecans from the store for a couple bucks. And now, I mean, you know, half a pound of chopped pecans in the grocery store is $12. Um, you know, so they, you know, they definitely, they definitely know the same thing and they're definitely manipulating the market. Uh, I think some of it, you know, the supply and demand, I, I would, I, w- I would gather, and it's completely anecdotal. Um, I don't have any empirical evidence, you know, to, to back it up. But I think part of it too is, you know, them just wanting to man- manipulate our own markets um, and, you know, cause stress in our, in our system. 
Well, and it's also, you know, farmers have short-term memories, right? I mean, you're saying you look at the amount of risk that you have every year and it's like, hey, they, you know, uh, it's kind of like that, that beaten dog syndrome. Yeah, you beat me last year. Hey, this time, hey, I, I, you know what? I know we screwed you last year, but you know what? This year, I really need this amount of crop. And you're like, hey, new year and, you know, new seller and this and that. So I'm sure a, a lot of that uh, is to play as well, where they can cancel the contract. That's great. That year is over. And now they want to come back to you. Uh, and so it's like, Hey, you know, you've, you've got to make sales every year to make it right. And then, you know, they obviously take advantage of that. And, and I know on the back end, uh, I've seen some stuff in the organic market. Uh, I've got a buddy who lives out in California and, uh, he basically handles, uh, all the pesticides and stuff like that, uh, for the organic, uh, you know, agricultural market. And I've sat there and listened to the guy on phone calls with, you know, uh, people overseas, you know, he was in, in particular, I think it was like plums or something like that, or blueberries, whatever the hell it was. But, uh, you know, talking to uh, a buyer down or a distributor down in Brazil or whatever in the hell it was. And, you know, basically, uh, you know, you guys talking about the market going up and down so much saying, hey, look, we need to stop the flood of, of whatever fruit it was into the U.S. Uh, so put a freeze on it. He's like, put a freeze on it for two months because otherwise, and which we've seen in Ukraine, right? That's when we're, we're talking about Poland and a couple other places that have uh, banned, you know, agriculture coming out from Ukraine because they're so worried that foreign companies are going to come in and flood the market. Uh, and then like you said, Brandon, uh, you know, you paid for this stuff two years ago, you know, so you expect some type of profit coming out of this and then we get flooded with cheap crap and then, you know, it drives everything down. Um, I think, you know, the other thing you got to look at, you know, China's one aspect of it, uh, and I'll kick it out to, to either one of you guys or even Josh, you know, one of the big, one of the big concerns that we have here in Arizona are the Saudis. So the Saudis are actually coming over here buying farmland using our water, growing their own agriculture, and then shipping it back. So here's what's mind-boggling to me, and, and I, I guess I'll throw it to, to Brandon to see, you know, do you guys see that happening out there? It is cheaper for a foreign company to come to Arizona, buy 100 acres, grow their own lettuce, use our water, and ship it back than it is for them to grow it over there. That to me is mind boggling. Do you guys, have you guys seen any type of foreign uh, investment or foreign farms or anything like that out in your neck of the woods? Honestly, we haven't, as far as I know, I haven't seen any of it in this area. Uh, a big contributing factor to, factor that might be our land prices here are higher than most of the other, most of the other places in this country. Seems like where they're buying where these outside sources are buying land, land's going for two, three, four thousand dollars an acre. Around here, it's ten, twelve, fifteen an acre. Um, so I really think that's kind of what's keeping them out of this area. So to be honest, I'm not that knowledgeable on it just because I haven't had to deal with deal with the outside investors either from you know different states or even different countries. What about you, Jared? You seen any of that? Um. Man, I've heard of a little bit, you know, my family farms out in Southwest Kansas, you know, we're, you know, we're a little bit different as far as price per acre for farm ground. I mean, it's, it's rising for sure. We've got a lot of like wind infrastructure going out out there, um, you know, which is jacking the price of farm ground up just because you have that return on investment, um, you know, with the, the windmills, but I've heard of maybe some, uh, you know, Chinese investor groups, you know, out in those big portions of, of pasture and stuff. But I can't confirm that. I mean, I've, I would be definitely willing to bet you if they were going to get it somewhere in Kansas, that's probably where they'd go is that western part of the state. 
um, just because there is a lot of that wind energy and they're talking about solar panels and stuff like that. So who knows, but I would be willing to bet you that's probably where, you know, if, if they were going to go anywhere, that's where they'd be. Because I mean, Brandon and I were at a land auction the other day and I mean, it's just stupid what people are paying for land up here. I mean, that's a significant investment in, you know, producing a crop and you've almost got to have other land paying for it to pay it off. And you may not even pay it off in your lifetime. So that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you, you know, you guys live where you, where you guys are at. It's obviously pretty good ground. Um, you know, one of the reasons for the, for the price, uh, and everything. Um, so, when we when when I was out there in uh, in July, we talked about you know migrant workers and kind of what that what that scene was. I know where my parents live down in southern Georgia. Again, you know, there's a lot of a lot of farms. You know, the, the vast majority aren't anywhere near the size of the farms in the Midwest. Um, but you know, a number of the big farms, you know, big operations down there. Obviously, a lot of the migrant workers are all Hispanics. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, that's just the, the nature of the business. Um, but you guys had mentioned that there was a number of non-Hispanics, specifically South Africans, you know, kind of moving into the, you know, the area to, to work the farms. If you could just let the listeners know, like, what's going on with that, you know, kind of how do you guys think that started and, you know, what you're, what you're seeing out there and, and why you think that is. Yeah. Um, you know, Brandon would have some influence on this one too, um, just cause there's some stuff locally, but, uh, you know, when I, before Bree and I got married and I moved up here, I worked for a co-op, um, which would be kind of the same, just supply type of stuff that I'm doing now, um, in Abilene, uh, Kansas. And we had three South African workers, um, and you know, we're, it's not like we're paying them a lot. I mean, above minimum wage. But, uh, you know, they may be making 15 bucks an hour here, um, and they're absolutely thrilled with it. I mean, you got to give them a place to live and kind of give them a stipend. But, uh, I mean, man, there was times I'd go home at, you know, 6, 7 o'clock, and they'd be sitting there begging for me for something to do because they're away from their families. Um, and, I mean, they're, they're hard workers. Um, and I think that's – we just lose a lot of people to, like – Kansas city. I mean, you can't, um, get anybody for a decent wage, um, you know, here, you know, cause they'll go to Kansas city, get a higher wage and come back. Um, you know, so we've seen a little bit of that transition over to those, um, workers from South Africa cause they're getting run out of South Africa. Like it's going out of style too. Um, I mean, they, the South African, uh, people don't even want them there. So, I mean, they're getting threatened to be killed and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's borderline genocide. So, And it can be tough to get them here to work, too. Um, I've just looked into the process a little bit. But the way I understand it is you have to prove that you've been looking to get help uh, around local from U.S. citizens and that you can't do it. And that's our biggest issue is just you know, finding people to work. Um doesn't i don't you know there's a multitude of issues one you know we can't necessarily afford to pay somebody a hundred thousand dollars a year to come be a farmhand uh it's also expensive to to offer benefits for just a single or two or three employees 
So that just makes it hard on us. And then, uh, yeah, so the South Africans is a good option. Uh, there's companies that essentially bring them in, do all the visa work and everything. And you, you pay the company, the company provides them insurance. Then the company pays them. You just have to give them a place to live and guarantee them 40 hours a week to work. And anything after that's on you. Yeah. I think it's the H2A program is what it's called. I'm pretty sure. Isn't that right, Brandon? Yeah, I think you're right. H2A. Yeah. So, so on that, you know, I I think a lot of people uh, across the country have, you know, been having a problem finding people to work, just finding people to show up to work. You know, I mean, ever since COVID, there's been a number of help wanted signs and, you know, this and this and that, Um, you know, what could, let's say a U.S., you know, a, a U.S. citizen, um, you know, that's, you know, that's the cousin Eddie holding out for me, you know, a management position, you know, they come out to a farmhand, you know, to a farmhand job in, in, in the Midwest, you know, what could they reasonably expect to, uh, to make? Um, I would say a, a decent average salary would be somewhere in the, in the 40, 40 to $50,000 range. Um, of course it, obviously depends on experience and everything else and you know how big of an operation they're going out to work for and sure but yeah somewhere in that 40 to 50s i would say average yeah so somebody let's say somebody who was eight you know oh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i was gonna say somebody who's 18 years old just graduated high school it's like i don't want to go to college right now i want to wait a, you know a couple of years you know they show up and you know they're physically they're able-bodied you know, and they're, and they're ready to grind, they could, you know, they could kind of start off making 40, 50. Uh, maybe not start off. That's probably more on the upper end of things. The guys that are experienced and been there a couple of years. I mean, I know 1750 straight out of 1750 an hour straight out of high school isn't out of the realm of possibilities. I mean, opportunity to make upwards 20, 25, starting to work up into that higher, higher pay bracket. Um, it seems like what happens a lot with if you find a good employee, you know, you train them up, you get them going, everything, everything's going great. And then now that they've learned, they go ahead and head somewhere else for higher pay. And then you're back to square one to find somebody else that's decent that can run your stuff and be careful, you know, because you're putting a 18 year old kid in a half a million dollar machine. They can tear stuff up pretty quick. It's Hell it's pretty tough yeah. to find somebody who's not going to do that. <laughs> He's going to have a couple of drinks. <laughs> yeah, Brandon, you remember when you were 18 and you were the one crashing stuff? <laughs> I, I, have, I have crashed many a farm equipment. I still do. So when it comes to, to labor, and don't incriminate yourselves, obviously, uh, and I know you, you, are, you both of you are fine, upstanding American citizens that would never break the law. Uh, do any of you, and, and maybe it's more for Jarrett because I'm, I'm a, you know, you're, you're exposed to not just one farm, but even with you, Brandon, do you see a lot of your, uh, other farmers, other helpers, other companies out there using a lot of illegal labor at all? I, I know you're a little bit removed from the border. We see it a lot down here in Arizona for obvious reasons, but do you, do you run across that, uh, at all out there? Man, I mean, we don't, we've got to get through a whole hiring process, um, and everything like that. I mean, we're, we're fairly corporate. Um, so no, I mean, we don't really see a lot of that. That If that was going to happen, it would be more on the, the farm side, but 
Yeah, and I don't see it here at all. I couldn't I couldn't think of one person who has an illegal hired. Um, it seems like that happens to me. Just thinking about it, more on the the real heavy intensive labor type jobs. Um, I'm trying to think what would be a good example. Like concrete, like pro, like produce that needs manual labor to actually harvest it. Ex- yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, they're gonna have to walk through the field with a you know a corn knife and knock stuff down. Where here, you know, you got to be able to run equipment. Nobody, nobody's out there anymore hand picking, <laughs> hand picking corn, running yeah. through the sheller. That and I, that brings up kind of an interesting thing. You know, I, my family's in Southwest Kansas, so you know that's Dodge City area. You've got a higher Hispanic concentration of people, and I, man, I would bet you that there's probably a few running around out there. You know, guy looking for truck driver or something just needs somebody to get it to the elevator. I guess I wouldn't really put it past somebody out there to to potentially have somebody like that because you get a lot of that migration towards Dodge City. I think it's really kind of majority Hispanic anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I would guess that that would be, um, you know, probably the the area that that would go. Yeah, and I was just wondering, especially with the with the flooding that we've had at the border. I mean, obviously these folks have to have jobs somewhere, and and you brought up a valid point. I think both of you were, yeah, you're not putting that dude, uh, you know, in your combine <laughs> to drive that thing around. But you, know, <laughs> you, you got a lot of the manual labor, you know, type jobs, and maybe out here. I mean, you know, we've got lettuce farms as far as the eye can see, and you know, you see those folks sitting out there, and I feel bad for them. I mean, God bless them for working, but. You know, I see them out there, man. It's like 110, 115 degrees, and they're out there with their baskets dumping stuff in there. And I'm just like, dude, that is a uh, that is a, a crazy way to live. So I just wasn't sure how far out from Arizona. Because here, I mean, you know, you want to go get your concrete poured or whatever, you just run down to your local Home Depot, Circle K, and they'll do whatever. So I know with, like, our, our farms out here, uh, especially with the town that I live at, you've got a lot of folks that are that are manning that. But wasn't sure how far outside of uh, Arizona that that's, you know, proliferated or or what have you. So quick question on the, on the grain thing. Cause I'm, I'm still stuck on the MGP piece. So <laughs> with the, I'm pissed that Josh didn't mention this to me. It, it's incredible to me. Uh, and, and, and we do need to shout them out so we can get something here. So are do you, with your, with your grain that goes to MGP, is it a certain uh, quality that you have to send? To, like what's their requirements for what you send to them? So, it's actually kind of backwards of what you'd think. You'd think MGP being what they are, they only take the highest quality of grain. But really, for for what they're doing for the distilling, the ethanol and whatnot, they kind of get the they don't get the bottom of the barrel. Like I mean, they'll still reject you if you've got uh, severe issues with your corn. But there's a lot more strict guidelines at other um, at other elevators in the area. And there's there's one where if they see a soybean on the rail of your grain truck, it's you're out. You don't get to dump that load. Wow. Um, where that happens to you, you just take her over to MGP and you know, they kind of mix and match. And that's what you get to drink later on, put in your car. Yeah. You get some soybean. So, so you said uh, you have severe issues with your corn. What are some of the issues that you'll get kicked back for? This would probably be more Jarrett's expertise type of area as far as, um, oh, there's like alpha toxins or, yeah. you know, Jarrett, you lead the way. Yeah, you know, so that's going to be an issue 
really more than anything in a drought year. Um, I mean, as you see the corn plant mature, it actually, the ear kind of tips over. So it's facing down and that husk actually basically rolls the water out of there. Um, you know, but in a drought year, you don't have a heavy ear. So it sits there like this. Um, and all that water comes in the top of that husk and that's what creates, you know, those aflatoxins and stuff like that. Um, you know, it'd be a very similar, a different type of a toxin in wheat, but similar to that too. You know, so you can get rejected for stuff like that. Sometimes, I mean, on the grain storage side of things, you can have grain that gets hot. Um, and I mean, that would be more of a Brandon thing. You know, grain gets hot, gets all moldy and black. They probably reject you for that too. Um, but Brandon, you might touch on like, so you've got MGP and then you've got Bartlett, but what about like Lifeline that actually would be like food grade corn? You know, that's another yeah. local. So Lifeline's more of a. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Lifeline's more of a food grade type of deal. Um, uh, their their standards are high. They're they're testing every load, and it, it it slows the process down. But essentially, they'll they'll probe you, so they'll, they'll stick a they'll essentially pull a core of corn out of your trailer, run it through a tester, and you're going to sit there and wait for about 15 minutes while they do every single different test on that corn to make sure it's going to be food grade for human consumption. Um, the other ones don't necessarily go, you know. Don't go that in in depth. At least at the uh, at the elevator, I'm sure down the road they do. Yeah. So when I was at the co-op, actually, I did not get involved in the grain side much. But we've got so you know you've, you've got your agronomy division, and then you've got your grain side of things. So we'd basically send, you know, wheat would come into to our terminal. We'd load it on a uh, a train and it would head to Mexico and it had to be a certain standard when it got there. Otherwise the train would get rejected. So you've, you've got to do all that testing ahead of time, whether it be protein, moisture, you know, stuff like that. And they hit that perfectly. Um, so that, I mean, they're, they're blending grain, you know, from, as it comes in, you know, they're sorting moisture, they're sorting protein, stuff like that so that they hit the quality that basically the consumer needs so that it doesn't get rejected. And they do all that testing in house as it goes out the door. So, I mean, it's, that was just one little thing that I really got involved in, but man, I, I was not in that side much, but there are certain standards that you have to go through, you know, when you get that grain. So if you've got a junk load, you know, it's more than likely going to get mixed in with some really, really good stuff at a very low rate you know, to meet that standards. So they're constantly mixing grain to get to a certain quality that they need. Oh, gotcha. So Brandon, on the food quality, so it takes you, you know, you're going to sit there, you know, 15 minutes while they, you know, run the, run the traps on all that. Do they pay more than, you know, if you were to go dump it at a non-food grain quality place like MGP or, or anything? Um. <clears throat> They're really pretty similar for the most part. They um, stuff like that. They'll typically offer a, a little bit higher premium. So if you come in with corn that's got a higher protein or a higher test weight, or um, that that's also where you can sell non-GMO corn. 
then they'll start to give you, you know, they'll have their base price to say five bucks and then, you know, they'll throw another 12 cents on top for a higher test weight or another 15 on top for like a non, non GMO type of deal. So that's, that's kind of how they end up paying on the higher side. But for the most part, they're, they're pretty similar really compared to all the other grain elevators in town, which is surprising to me. I gotcha. So I know you've shown me before, um, but for the, you know, for the listeners, how can you go while, you know, while your corn is, is growing, let's say in the summer, you, you, you're out there, you grab an ear and, uh, you know, how can you tell, how can you approximate, uh, estimate rather, you know, how much, uh, corn that 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 area that acre or whatever is gonna is gonna produce how many bushels so it's just pretty simple math for the most part you're you're figuring the first number that you have to know is how many plants per acre you were planted at so in this area we're typically planting about thirty two thousand seeds per acre now that you're expecting to get say thirty two thousand final stand is what you call that um from there, you can go out, you can grab an ear of corn, you count the rows by the width around. Uh, so an average year would be, say, 16 kernels around by 34 tall. You multiply that, and then you have your dividing factor, which is typically how many kernels are in a bushel. A good average number for an average year is about 80,000. So if you're taking... So you take your... 32 rows tall times 16. That's your final kernel count of 512 kernels. Your standing population should be about 32,000. That's 16 million and some change kernels per acre divided by your average <clears throat> average kernels per bushel, which would be 80,000. So that'd come out to 204 bushels an acre. It's kind of how you have to how you have to estimate it. You See, kind of take a field rep representative field sample is what you're looking for i would i would be the worst farmer ever because i'm florida public schooled math i would never get that i'd be like i i don't know how much is here like i i can even do that math so if i can do it you can do it oh oh i don't know man i don't think you want to take that pepsi challenge i am uh i'm bad at math it's like our kids when, uh, you know, when they basically when they pass a sixth grade, I was like, hey, man, I'm done helping you with math homework. You got to go. You got to go to mom. Yeah. I can't help you anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think, so, you know, even when you're talking about estimating yield, a lot of that can change, you know, right even now, because you get into that test weight side of things, you know, that kernel count may go from, you know, potentially even up to 70,000 is what you would divide that by, which would be more yield. But, you know, you get a disease so, come in late and you lose test weight and you may take that number down to 90,000. Well, then all of a sudden you're, you might be around 170. So. So to explain the test weight, essentially what the test weight is, is there's a nominal factor for what they call a bushel, even though a bushel is a volume, volumetric measurement. Uh, they just streamlined it. So, a bushel of corn is 56 pounds to make it nice and simple. They don't, you know, they don't take the dimensions of your trailer to get that figured out. What the test weight is, is how many bushels it actually takes or how many pounds it actually takes to make a bushel or how many pounds it actually be in a true bushel. So you're trying to get over that 56 is where you're going to start really making your money at. 
because you've got more more weight and less grain. Just you can take more to town, and it it ends up being you know more money in your pocket at the end of the day. So you're talking from 56 to 62. That's a 10 percent increase on your yield right there. So I got a question for Jarrett regarding like GMO versus non-GMO and and similarly pesticides. So being a family man, do any of those concern you? Do you lean one way uh, as opposed to another? Uh, and as far as the pesticides that are being used and, and understanding there's a business side to it, obviously. Uh, but is there anything out there like, eh, I'm not so keen on putting, you know, eating foods necessarily that, that, that were treated with this or that or what have you? No, I mean, I have zero concerns, um, you know, on that side of things. The, what it comes down to at the end of the day is like, you know, when we're growing a, a GMO, um, you know, basically we, in, it's just a trait inserted into that corn that's not going to affect us in any way, shape or form. It's just a, a factor of, hey, can this product metabolize, um, you know, glyphosate? So like you plant, uh, you know, Roundup Ready corn that corn plant, basically, whenever you spray a chemical on it, it's just, it's got to decide, is this poison? Is this going to kill me? Or am I going to send it right on through? And that's the way it is with glyphosate. You know, it's a, it's a non-selective herbicide. So it kills grasses, broadleaves, stuff like that. Um, you know, so inserting that trait helps us, you know, kill those weeds that are out there. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's completely passed through that plant, you know, by the time it, it gets to grain and I mean, the FDA would regulate, you know, that stuff, um, you know, to the point where if, if there was a quality issue, it would, it would for sure be, be out. Um, but I think, you know, I was doing some research on that and there's like fractions of a parts per million of glyphosate that could potentially end up in a kernel of, of corn. So I, for my eyes, I'm not worried about it at all. I mean, zero. And how about you, Brandon? Anything would, uh, that you see that concerns you? <laughs> and not not to put any of you guys on the spot, but you know, you, you, we have a lot of listeners, and I've always been a fan of like, uh, you know, I got a, one of our other listeners. You know, he uh, he does a lot of the organic, non-GMO, and this and that. And, and you know, there's there's a difference between having boys and girls. Like my boy, I want him on steroid milk because I don't need him to be like <laughs> five two and weigh 110 pounds when everybody else is all yoked out, Ronnie Coleman style, right? Uh, so, you know, I think there is an advantage to it. And I, you know, it's kind of funny because we were talking about the roundup ready corn and stuff like that a, a couple episodes ago, but, uh, not to put either of you in the spot, but do you see anything on your end that causes concern? So I'll just say that I know a lot of guys in this general area that have been using roundup for years. I mean, and has had roundup all over their hands, getting into all their pores. I'm sure some of them have drank it at one point in time. <laughs> and yeah, you don't see the increased cancer rates around here. Like I would expect to, if it was causing all the issues that, that, you know, is people have said is out there. I, I'm sure it's a carcinogen in some way, shape or form. Seems like about everything is, but I, I don't see it necessarily as an issue for me or I, I'm not concerned about it for my family. And I'll, I'll promise you, if you go out to a field that has been sprayed with glyphosate 
hasn't been sprayed with the glyphosate, you're going to want to take, you're going to want to eat the corn off the one that's been sprayed because, man, it's a wooly, weedy, gross mess on the ones that aren't really using a whole lot of chemical, unless unless they're doing it right on the organic side. And there's some guys that are, but, man, there's a lot of guys that don't put the effort in required to, to do that the right way, and they get some, some gross-looking fields. Yeah. Hey, man, all you, all you got to do with that is, you know, just chase it down with some high-proof MGP, and it'll, <laughs> you know, it'll cancel each other out, and you'll be good. Um, yeah. So, so Roger brings up the, uh, you know, the organic. Uh, there, I think there's some misconceptions out there about what is organic. What does organic truly mean when something gets labeled organic? Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that that means one thing, and I've been, you know, I've read a couple of different things. Uh, so if you guys could break down when when something is labeled organic, what does that really mean? Brandon, you want to go for that one? Or you want me to? I can, I can give her my best shot, I guess. Yeah, go for uh, it. So to my best understanding, organic is a non-GMO. So the, 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 the corn seed has not been genetically modified in any way. There's no... It doesn't have any tolerance. And on the organic side, I don't believe they spray them with any kind of chemical at all. I don't think they can use any type of synthetic fertilizer. Um, so a lot of their weed control and stuff is either turning the dirt over and killing the weeds that way by just essentially uprooting them. Or they've got some cool weed burners, weed zappers, stuff like that. But as far as the organic go, that's my best understanding and maybe jared's got a more scientific yeah uh, so i mean man we deal with very few if any organic guys around here i mean very little um but i think the the bigger side of things and even probably a few years ago i mean brandon you guys grew conventional corn which that would be zero traits zero um you know so like it wouldn't be roundup ready but that doesn't mean that you're not spraying anything over it uh, I mean, there's still, you know, herbicides that you can use um, to to help control pests in that crop, whether it be weeds, um, you know, even bugs, stuff like that. I mean, you're still spraying stuff over the top of that. Um, it would just be a non-GMO. So it would still be a hybrid corn variety. But just because it's non-GMO or conventional does not mean that you're not using chemical on top of it. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, I, I think that's where, you know, some of the questions come into play is, you know, cause people think organic and they're like, organic has never been touched with any chemical period, right? Non-GMO or anything. And I didn't think that was the case based on what I read, but I wasn't 100% sure again, Florida, you know, Florida public schools. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to ask you guys on, uh, on that. So when you see organic, it, it, it means it hasn't been sprayed with a not with a GMO, um, but it could have been sprayed with a non-GMO chemical. That is that a correct statement? So, so there's a difference. The biggest difference lies between non-GMO and organic. Um, non-GMO you can spray with any of the chemicals. It's not going to kill the corn. Organic cannot be sprayed with any chemicals at all. Um, and like a lot of times, it becomes certified organic. You've got to run no chemicals through your farm for three years. It's a, it's a heck of a process to get yeah. to be a certified organic farmer. Holy moly. Yeah. 
And I would, man, I, mean, I would I almost know. argue. I don't know how guys do. Yeah, I would almost argue that it, you're you're doing a lot more for yourself by farming with GMOs because, um, you know, the newest trend, I guess, in ag is, uh, you know, soil health, regenerate at, regenerative ag, stuff like that. So using cover crops. I mean, there's a lot of soil biology that goes on, you know, in your soil that converts, you know, say calcium phosphate into P2O5, which would be a plant available form of phosphorus that it would use. You go out there with some organic stuff and you've got to go cultivate it. You're killing your soil biology that is helping you out. Um, You know, so man, an organic corn farmer, he may raise 70 bushel corn. You know, Brandon's out here raising 200 plus because you have the the technology incorporated into that plant. Um, and you're just, you're really helping yourself out by using some of those products, um, you know, to, to pass on to the consumer. I mean, we're trying to feed a, a growing world. I mean, you cannot do that without... I mean, if everybody wants to go starve, I mean, we'll go organic if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and organic doesn't mean, you know, healthier. You know, one of the, uh, some of the conversations I've had and going back to what you're talking about with GMO versus non-GMO and then what you spray on it, you know, so essentially with organic, you you can't spray anything that's been synthesized, nothing synthetic. But one of the things that we had talked about uh, probably about a hundred episodes ago was uh, a lot of organic farmers and, and anecdotal and the limited conversations I've had, they use a lot of copper, right? They use a lot of copper because it's natural. Uh, and so there are some ties and I don't want to sound like RFK yet. We're probably gonna get banned on YouTube because we just mentioned his name, but, um, you know, there, (laughs) there's, you know, some concern that there is an association or a correlation with the amount of copper, because I've heard again, anecdotal, uh, that they'll drop a hundred times the amount of copper on there because they can't use, you know, synthetic pesticides, uh, they'll use a hundred times or a thousand times the amount of copper uh, in those fields, uh, and so there, you know, uh, there's assumed to be some link between that and migraines and headaches and and God knows whatever else, right? Because at the end of the day, they're having to put something on there. Uh, so it's it's just a matter of hey, do you want a thousand pounds of copper or do you want you know whatever else you know other pesticide that they're using for you know that's going to result in a higher yield. Uh, and I think that's why we see the organic stuff, you know, it's two, three, four times the, the price, you know, and for me, it's just, you know, everybody, it just kind of, you know, you see it in Whole Foods, you see it in the Trader Joe's and everybody just assumes. And, and I would tell our listeners, hey, do your own due diligence. Maybe that's one of the things that we need to do a little bit more on, on an episode specifically on the organic stuff that, you know, just kind of became synonymous with, well, hey, this is healthier for you. And uh, no, not so much. I mean, and I think from everything that you guys are saying and then some of the stuff that I read, uh, it's like it, it may actually be worse for you. You just got caught up on the buzzword that, you know, it's the healthy choice now. It it just feels better to eat organic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and there's a difference, right? Because what you guys are doing is at scale. And, you know, we have like a bunch of lemon trees and lime trees and stuff out here. And, you know, it, it's it's hard to quantify in your head that that scale. Like I look at my lemon tree. It's organic. Okay. I don't spray anything. You know why? Because I eat like four lemons a year. I can afford yeah. to do that. Uh, but like, you know, Jarrett saying you're trying to feed an entire world, right. Or an entire country. That's like, okay, take your four lemons that you eat, uh, and multiply it times 10 million. Okay. Yeah. Now there's a, there's a big difference in that. Absolutely. And the, uh, you know, we were at a, a Kansas corn meeting 
the other night, which would be basically be our corn advocacy group, advocacy group within Kansas to basically promote, you know, the use of corn through ethanol, you know, in fuel, um, you know, feed and food. Um, and they had some interesting statistics on like where, you know, that food is going. Like if you eat a, a taco shell, you know, you're eating probably Kansas corn. I mean, you really are. Uh, I mean, there's so much stuff that corn is in and we don't think about it, but it's, it's on our table every day. I mean, um, they had an interesting, you know, deal that like Mexico is actually buying corn, making all their stuff and sending it back. So I get that stuff from Aldi, those corn chips, man, they're fire. And I bet you they're made in Mexico. So they're good. Yeah. They're legit. We got it. Yeah. I mean, there's the best. I mean, a lot of that stuff ends up on everybody's table in general. So can't forget about yeah. the delicious high fructose corn syrup either. That's in oh yeah. And it's <laughs> wonderful. I can see, I can see Wilford Brimley now. See right now. Like diabetes, diabetes. <laughs> Got my diabetes. Um, that's right. So on that, so, you know, talking about corn, it, it, jumping back to the, uh, you know, the, some of the other questions that that we got, because, um, again, you know, we hit up a couple of folks and were like, hey, you know, what questions you have? And I know, you know, my mom's one of them because my mom's always trying to, you know, figure out, you know, what's better. Is it better organic or, you know, it's GMOs. And she, she always shies away from from the GMOs. She wants things that are organic. But then, you know, like, you know, like Roger's saying, like you guys are saying, she she complains that organic is so much more expensive. And it's like, OK, well there's a reason for that you know because they lost half the crop to you know the the bull weevil or you know whatever the hell you know some some type of fungus or disease right and so it's like you you get to pick um but the other one of the other questions that we got is how you know what do all the different cuts of meat mean you know when something when it says it's usda when it's you know it's choice you know, what are those cuts what from I guess from like the lowest end cut of meat to the highest, uh, you know, and Brandon, this might be more for you. I don't know, Jared, you know, you you know as well chime in, but like you know, from, take us from the lowest cut of meat to the highest, and and what each one of those mean. So there's essentially, as far as I know, there's about eight different classifications for beef, um, starting all the way from the bottom tier, which is you know the stuff that's going to go into dog food, and then. From dog food, you go up to hot dogs, and then you start getting up to, <laughs> from hot dogs, you're getting into frozen meals and canned meals and stuff like that. Um, when you're getting up into the stuff that I imagine you're talking about, the stuff that you're going to see on the shelf, yeah, um, there's there's three different classifications for the most part of the USDA uh, certified beef. So there's select, there's choice, and there's prime. Uh, your select's going to be um, you're essentially the, the lowest grade that they're going to put on the shelf for the most part. And that's, that's probably somewhere in the realm of 30% of the, all the beef that's produced is going to end up being select. The biggest difference between each of the grading is typically just in the marbling. Uh, so what your fat content is in that meat, that's going to, it's going to determine what, you know, how juicy, how tender your steak is. Um, so select's kind of your bottom of your barrel. Um, as far as steaks and stuff go next up the vast majority of the steaks kind of the best bang for your buck is going to be the choice and 50 to 55 percent of 
all beef that ends up in the grocery store is going to be select. Uh, it's, you know, pretty well marbled. It's so the classification for that is essentially four to 10% fat. The select is two to 4% fat. So it's like pretty tough. Um, <laughs> the next step up from choice is going to be your, your prime. And that is two to 5% of all the beef that comes in the grocery store is going to be prime. That's why you're paying more. There's a lot less of it. There's a difference. It's not quite as huge. It's so choice was four to ten percent fat content. Prime is eight to thirteen. So it's just pretty well higher quality across the board um, as far as your your marbling and your fat content goes. That's really the biggest difference between any of the grading is it's it's all figured off of fat content. Now, when you start talking about the prime, I would imagine, or real, really any of those cuts, how much are we shipping overseas that you, that you know of? That is a question I am not well informed enough to answer, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah. No, I do have good. one question on the, on the grading real quick. So with a cow, can the cow have multiple grades of meat? I mean, obviously there's different cuts of, of steak, right? So can you have like, like you've got, you know, women that have a big ass or, you know, small chest or whatever, right? Can they have, uh, nobody that we know, but you know, can a, can a cow have multiple, like, Hey, you know what? The filet piece is, you know, this rating and, uh, you know, the porterhouse is whatever. So as far as I know, they grade the whole cow as one, uh, one grade. So they take a, they take the same chunk of meat from every cow and that's what they base their grading off of. It's, one of the cuts of meat in between two of the ribs is how they do it. And that just, that just, that simplifies it so that when they sell it, you know, they're, they're just selling this whole cow as, you know, 600 pounds of of prime meat versus, you know, 200 of prime, 400 to select. I've been called that that many times in my life. (laughs) What? Dog food? Prime meat. Prime. No one's ever called. No one's ever called you prime. <laughs> yeah, you got me. Anyway, yeah. anyway, yeah. So on. So on the uh, on the beef part. So you know, here here in our household, we have gone back and forth many times, and we just kind of never fully committed. Um, but I think now you know we're in the we're in the market for a deep freezer. I just got to find room in my garage to uh, you know to to put one. We're gonna have to do an upright. We don't have room for a chest freezer. But we've, you know, we've kind of resigned ourselves. We're just going to go and start buying half a cow, you know, at a time. Um, because you go to, you know, we went to the store here, you know, a week or two ago and basically got a chuck roast. And it wasn't a big chuck roast. I mean, it's just a couple pound chuck roast. It was like $25. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't prime. Um, I, I don't think it was a prime cut but it was like 25 bucks. I was like, okay, this isn't, this is not sustainable. Um, so are people better off? And, and, you know, and and again, I, I know you guys have kind of, you know, gotten away from, you know, feeding them all the way up to, to slaughter. And you, you might not know the answer to this question, but kind of once that cow hits the, you know, the, the, the last feedlot, right. It's getting, it's getting fed. It's got its final meal. The governor's not calling kind of, you know, how does that kind of, what's the process for that cow to wind up on a grocery shelf, uh, you know, in the, in the cooler at your, at your grocery store. And is it better? So two part question. And is it better for people to just go buy direct from a farmer 
you know, that, that half a cow, granted a farmer who actually, you know, who, who, who slaughters cows and stuff like that. I know you guys don't, um, but is it better for them to go to the farmer and just buy it from them, um, instead of, you know, getting meat at the grocery store? So the process from the field to the packer, to the guy who's, you know, putting it in the, uh, in the packages there at the store, you know, they go to the feedlot, they fatten them up as best they can. They're trying to put as much fat on them as they possibly can to get them up into that, you know, into that prime category. It's what they're, what everybody's trying for. Um, take them, you get them to the, to the butcher and it's a, and they'll essentially go ahead and kill the cow, hang it. They'll, I don't know how graphic you want to get here. Essentially, it sits on a meat hook. They go through and they start processing everything. And I don't know. From that point, I'm not sure, you know, how each company does it differently. But sure. a lot of the times, you know, they're hanging there for a couple of days, bleeding, you know, getting all the uh, getting all the blood and everything else out. So you're just getting pure meat. But as far as buying local, I mean, I don't think there's a better way to do it than that. That's you're going to say it's a bigger upfront cost is, is the biggest downside, but you're going to save ridiculous amounts of money. You're going to get a lot higher quality product. You're helping somebody out. You're kind of, you're cutting out that big middleman that's typically making the, the biggest chunk of change there. Um, but you know, you find yourself a good farmer <clears throat> raises beef. You know, you can say, if you want to, you can say, I want that cow. Um, and the butcher will call you, you know, what, how do you want these cuts? You know, you can tell them, I want inch and a half steaks. I want three quarter steaks. I want all the roasts. I want the roast turned into steaks. I want the roast turned into hamburger. You can really do pretty much exactly what you want. And you're going to, you're going to cut your, if you would go to, to spend that at a grocery store to get the same amount of meat, you're probably talking three times the cost I would imagine you're you're gonna pay you're gonna pay out the door somewhere in the realm of four to five bucks a pound where you know you go to the grocery store and you get your lowest quality cut of steak and you're still gonna pay nine ten bucks a pound you're gonna pay seven eight bucks a pound for ground beef you're saving a lot of money and you're getting a lot better product at the end of the day and you got a freezer full of meat you don't have to drive to the grocery store that's very true. So yeah, I think we're, uh, I think we're, we're ready to pull the trigger and, uh, and do it again. Like you said, you know, it about, it, and it was, it was like a, you know, like a three or four pound chuck roast, you know, not, not big at all. And it, it was like $25 and I was like, holy moly, like I can't, like, this is crazy. And you're in it. Right. So that was, you know, that was dinner one night and that was only for one night. Right, we're you know we're a family of five. Like you know, we we kill that in in one night, and that wasn't you know that didn't include everything else that went into the meal. And so for like one dinner, it's like damn man, we're in this thing for like seventy dollars. Like it's crazy just for one just for one dinner. I gotta went to Chick Fil A for cheaper than that. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's so. actually been kind of a fluctuation. Um, I would even just say since COVID, of guys actually doing that, like. There's a local guy around here, um, you know, 
in that COVID area, they were needing basically producers. So he got, um, you know, certified and they actually take their farm from, you know, they grow it, they, you know, feed them out. They're the processor and they, they're licensed to sell it in house. So, you know, you've got the whole shebang on that, that farm that helps them because they get to capture all that margin that the meat packers would. And you're getting that, that discount passed on to the, the consumer. I think, you know, that's, that's a great way to do it. And that's the way, you know, we've done it. And I think that is definitely increased, you know, since COVID when that supply was just so, so tight, you didn't know what you were going to get. So people filled their freezer and found that, Hey, this is the way to do it. Yeah. And it was a wild time during COVID when, uh, you know, meat prices skyrocketed. You couldn't, you couldn't find hamburger on the shelves. These packers went from being one to two months out, or the butchers went from being one to two months out to being six, eight, 10, 12 months out. I mean, everybody Holy was cow. like, yep, this is, this is the way to do it. And it really, really helped kickstart that in, industry of, you know, buying direct from farmer. Yeah. And I know some guys, you know, down by Atchison here, I mean, they, they really depend on that for their farm's livelihood, basically to be able to market that to the end user. I mean, they're, you know, a smaller farm just so they can, they can do it and stay alive. That's, that's what they do. They market it to the end user and that's how they collect a little bit more of a margin and a premium over, you know, the grocery store. So it really, I mean, helps people stay afloat. Yeah. Yeah. We're a little late, you know, we're, we're a little late to the game. Um, but I think we finally, yeah, we, we, we decided to go ahead and do that. The, um, I tell you during COVID, you know, like you said, Brandon, you, you couldn't find hamburger meat on the grocery shelf or, you know, anything, really anything else, What you could find though, you could find tomahawks, you know, and you could find, uh, you know, the high end Wagyu, um, because that was, you know, that was super expensive because I would go through the grocery store, you know, especially during COVID and I would, you know, I'd, I'd roll in there every other day and, um, you know, seeing what's seeing what's you know truly on the shelf because you hear like oh shelves are bare this that and you go in you're you know a lot of canned goods were you know were gone and all the chicken like you couldn't find you know you you could not find a piece of chicken you know to to save your life even chicken nuggets and uh but you know that corned beef hash is still on the shelf that spam still on the shelf so i was like (laughs) okay well people people aren't hungry yet Right, people aren't that hungry yet because this is still this still on the shelf. Yeah, man, but all the ground beef is gone. Like that thing, that was gone like day one. It didn't it didn't show back up for for a while. Um, it would have been or depending nice on where you're at. It's still like that. I mean, you know, I've done quite a bit oh, of traveling true. here in the last couple months, and fortunately, out here where I'm at, we have a lot of farms. We have a lot of cattle, uh, a lot of buffalo, chicken stuff like that. A lot of uh, pork. So we we have several farms. We have one that's the pork shop. That's all they do. Uh, it's just locally sourced pork and you go in there and you get fresh cuts and, and it's fantastic. And like you, like Jarrett mentioned, they're able to make a little bit more of a margin and I still pay less than what I would pay at the grocery store. But for the most part, and I'm assuming this is with the, the, the packers and the distributors, uh, our grocery stores are pretty full. But uh, I was back in Maryland a couple of weeks ago and you walk in the Safeway, zero chicken. Um, you know, your, your ground beef, the only thing that was left was like the 93% fat free ground beef. Uh, but a lot of those places, man, and, you know, <laughs> you hate to inject politics into this, but this is just what I see and what I observe. Uh, when you go to those bigger blue cities, 
uh, for the most part, like shelves are empty. And it makes me wonder how many of those folks, like that's just the new norm. Like this is just the way it's going to be. And it makes it even tougher and tougher for me to leave, you know, Arizona and go travel to some of those places. Uh, Because, man, I remember like our big thing here, like we were never short on meat. It was eggs. You know, I remember needing to go get like a dozen eggs and it was like $11 for like a dozen eggs. I'm like, I'm almost paying a dollar an egg, man. (laughs) You know, my boy's like, oh, I got a little eggshell in there. We'll throw it away. No bullshit. You you scoop that damn eggshell out of that thing. We got to cook that thing. That's a buck, man. (laughs) It's wild how much the inflation hit the eggs. But I mean, there are still local guys around here selling them, you know, go to the grocery store, it's eight, 10 bucks. And the guy down the street says, you want three bucks? You know, not they're not trying to make all the profit in it. It's, a, it's nice to nice to get to deal with those guys and help them out as much as you can. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, eggs and eggs really, really skyrocketed. You know, my parents have have some chickens. They got some uh, Rhode Island Reds, and man, you know, we were buying uh, eggs at the grocery store. You know, ten dollars a ten dollars a dozen. It was like man, I would actually burn the gas to drive down to South Georgia to come back with, you know, 10 dozen, you know, free eggs. Um, you know, cause we had the grocery store, it's crazy expensive, uh, absolute crazy expensive. So Josh was the smoky and the bandit of egg hauling. <laughs> that's right. Hey man, that's right. Cannonball I run, gotta, baby. I have, I have no shame. Um, yeah, it'll be like that. Uh, it'd be like you know one of those trips out to uh, to your guys's place where we drove out and then drove back and drove back and you know <laughs> hauling a couple hundred dollars worth of booze in the car, you know, because so yeah, allegedly. So to, you know, kind of off the uh, you know off the off the farming stuff, but Roger, this you know where Brandon lives is another place in the country. Um, contrary to, you know, to Texas where Luke lives, cause Luke claims there's no Weller special reserve on the shelf in Texas. He can't find it. Even though everybody else can find it. I don't know if Luke's colorblind and you can't see reds and greens or, or what, but Brandon and, uh, and Jarrett live in an area that is swimming in, in Weller special reserve. Like it is all over the place. It's absolutely crazy. Is well, he ought to be insane. swimming in some MGP products, but obviously he's not. So we got to, oh, no. we got to coach him along on this thing. It's like, Hey man, yeah, pick your brother right. Up. No, dude, this guy, dude, Brandon gets it. So, uh, I tell you, it, so we, you know, we went out and our, our listeners have heard me talk about this. So, you know, we went out to Kansas for a few weddings. Um, and you know, so the one where I did not intend for that girl to start crying, after I talked to her, uh, but I made, apparently I made her cry. That was Brandon's, uh, younger sister's wedding, um, where I made the girl cry. And, uh, but at Brandon's wedding, he had a, what was that? The, the Volstead? Yeah. Oh, the yeah. Volstead. Yeah. Dude. That's a easily, nice case too. It is super oh, bougie. Fantastic. Easily top five bourbon I've had in my life. Easy. It was absolutely phenomenal um so brandon always be on the hunt man if you see one just 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 tell me how much i owe you um i'll demo to you right then uh still still looking for one you can't find any remus back here there 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 is none in north carolina uh but you know so hopefully it comes back out there man but it did get popular um it did after when they went from four to five, they got quite a few cases of five in, and they had it in stock for a little bit until 
all the out-of-towners figured out that, oh, yeah, yeah, this Rena Spy is real good, and it flew right off the shelf because um, they were getting cases of this stuff in. Um, when the 5 came out, there was actually still three or four cases of Remus 2, so three years previous, that was still out there. 6 came around, they got like four bottles of it. And the allocations dried up quick, fast, and in a hurry. And that's crazy. You were literally right there at the spigot. Yeah, and... I drive by MGP to get to the liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Dude, that's... Yeah, that's absolutely nuts. You get some good stuff out there, though. Um, you, you you snagged that Weller foolproof, um, that stag, uh, a couple, and some cigar. Those Dude, cigar I blends, saw, man. I can't I saw, wait to get that cigar blend. I saw the new stag. I was in Atlanta, and there's this little crap hole liquor store. I walk in there, and I was like, "Oh, okay, they got stag." I mean, how much? You know, how much was bought? Dude, two ninety nine. I mean, yeah, that thing is going to sit on the shelf at two ninety nine. Ain't gonna happen. So the secret that I found with Atlanta is you have to go in the neighborhood where you don't blend in. That's the whole city. Because, well, okay, touche. But, like, you got to go into the real neighborhood. I'm talking about the real neighborhood (laughs) that you don't blend in. And you just got to walk in there because people are going to look at you and they're going to be like, that dude's either crazy or he's a cop. Either way, it's a trap. Don't mess with him. Um, Because a lot of times they don't know what they have and the people shopping at that store – they're not buying stag, right? Yeah, so, that's a good point. That's a good point. They I, I pulled two stag juniors out of Atlanta, out of a store near the airport. That, like, even in my days in Iraq, I was like, I felt safer in in Mosul in 05 than I did in this store. But at the end of the day, like, people looked at me like I was crazy, but nobody messed with me because they're like, mm, I'm not sure, man. Like, this is a, this could be a trap. This this could definitely be a trap. So, but uh. All right, so I think that's going to uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for us, guys. Jared, I got one last question um, for for you. Are you ready for your you ready for your antelope hunt? Oh my gosh, yeah. I was actually just um, you know looking at spots today. I mean, that's going to be a big. Th- I think we're a month out, right at a month out. So heading to Wyoming. I'm going to go see what I can do. I mean, going to go knock it down with the best of, see if I can get one. So. But yeah, no, I'm I'm pumped. It'll be a fun trip. That's awesome, man. Dude, good luck on that. Um, that is, we'll, I will be living vicariously through you uh, while while you're on that, and hopefully, uh, and hopefully next year I won't get skunked again on uh, on the permit draw um, for for your guys' area. Uh, we'll yep. see. We'll see what happens. But um, at the end you of the day, plenty of white tail down here. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at some point, even if we do, we need to we need to figure out we need to go 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 on a buffalo hunt somewhere, um, or go on a hog me. hunt. Yeah, we need to we need to do something. So, all right, well, that's going to do it for us here here at Culver's Canteen Cup. Um, once again, Luke, I hope you, I hope your dog is finally adopted, right? I hope you, you know, I, I hope this is the final process <laughs> since you couldn't make it tonight because apparently a lot of dog adoption paperwork and stuff is going on on Saturday evenings in uh, the middle of nowhere, Texas. But, uh, for those of you, uh, that are listening, we appreciate it again, you know, everything that you can, uh, you, you know, the, the most precious thing you can give us is your time. And, and we really appreciate that. Um, I'll kick it over to Roger in just a second. The only shout out I have is Damon. Hey man, 
we're, we're praying for you. We hope you're, uh, you know, hope you're on a road to recovery, hang in there, keep fighting. Don't, uh, don't give up. Uh, and, uh, and that's going to do it for me. Roger, what you got? So I'm jealous. So I drive an F-250 diesel. So reefer fuel and what I buy, I pay taxes on my diesel. What's the difference? Is it just the die? Like if I just run straight reefer fuel through my truck, am I good? I would never do that. I would pay the tax because that's what the government wants me to do. But I'm just saying, like, if I, you know, if I had a buddy that was just using reefer fuel on their truck, I mean, am I good with that? It's just a die? Oh, it's, it's not going to hurt your truck. It's going to hurt your wallet if you ever get your tank dipped. They, uh, they frown upon that one heavily. Right. But what are the odds of like, uh, you know, now I know I get it if I had like a commercial F-450, this and that or whatever, or, or, you know, like what you guys are driving, but my like POV F-250, what are the odds of me actually getting my tank dipped? Low, very low. Not going to advise that one, but I, I don't know of anybody personally that's ever had it happen to them. I'm I'm sure when, I, I think I heard when fuel prices started getting up in the $5 range, they started dipping a lot more tanks. It's, gotcha. it's really easy to really easy to tell if you've uh, you've been running the red. It sticks around for a long time. <laughs> I, I heard I heard Brandon say, "Do it." <laughs> hey man, well you know what I'm here. But you know I'm what? Here's, here. the, here's the thing, though. You know, I and I've actually given some thought to this. Again, I, I pay my taxes like I'm supposed to, and and then some. But it's like one. I think I have a Fourth Amendment right. Uh, so they better have some probable cause, like actually see me hit the reefer button on the, on the tank. And two, I can use reefer fuel on my truck if I'm using it for farm use. So if I'm legitimately using that, and then theoretically I go refill it back up with, you know, the government tax diesel, uh, like you said, that the stuff hangs out for, I'd be kind of curious. I'm going to have to do some, some gurk on this thing. I'm not, uh, I'm not going down that road cause I'm not trying to go to jail for, you know, four dollars worth of diesel or five dollars worth of diesel but uh my last question so either you guys on farmers only i had to ask <laughs> both of us I, uh, are happy i didn't ever get the so <laughs> yeah didn't ever get the pleasure of getting on to farmers only i should have checked it out in my single days <laughs> i'm just curious and i've seen the commercials i'm like do farmers really hop on that I'm the like, hell is that you know what it it's like your grinder thing that you hop on same thing for farmers oh what <laughs> <laughs> it's all good that was no. good that was good Hey, thanks, Brandon and Jarrett, for your time. Uh, and again, this is, you know, for our listeners out there, this is uh, when we talk about the PPI, the producer, um, you know, this is where a lot of those prices and stuff come from. And, and hopefully we were able to educate you folks, or hopefully Brandon and Jarrett were able to to educate you folks on there uh, a little bit about their processes. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, we never really, we heard a little bit from Jarrett, but hopefully the crystal ball shows some, some prices coming down over the next couple of years. But I have a feeling uh, and the next year or so that that's probably not going to be the case. But anyway, for our listeners out there, thanks again for your time. Uh, shout out to everybody that listens to us. Shout out to everybody that watches us. Hopefully we stay up on YouTube for a little bit, but uh, keep your canteen cups tightly secured and full of some good whiskey.